We are in the book of Acts and in our series, Unfinished. And for those of you who haven't uh, been here for this series, this is our series as we're walking step by step through the book of Acts and seeing how God worked through the early church and how he desires to work in our lives as well. And as this event that we're coming up in Acts chapter 3, we would all agree, reading it, it's, it's a miraculous thing, and we would be astonished and amazed at it. But oftentimes, if you are familiar with Scripture, you would read over it and not really think about how it applies to us. But there's something that's in here that's pretty amazing and pretty astounding. Matter of fact, I think it's very newsworthy. It's good news in the middle of a world that's often filled with bad news. And as I was putting this message together and I was uh, looking through something, and actually um, a clip came up as I was uh, trying to find a different fact and a historical event, and it was actually of Walter Cronkite. Now, I understand we're a multi-ethnic church and we have people from all different backgrounds, and you may not be familiar with Walter Cronkite, but he was a or the newsman of the 20th century. Uh, for those that were around a long time, you remember him. He was the, the man through whom you got your news. In our world today, we don't think about this. We have news that are just looking at our phone. We can get news from all over the world. But back then, people didn't have all of these different news outlets to go to. They didn't have all of these different TV stations. You had one place to turn, and it was often Walter Cronkite. And he was, he was presenting some of the, or reported on some of the greatest historical moments in the 20th century of America, I mean, in the 20th century, here in America whether it was uh, what was going on in World War II, whether it was uh, the John F. Kennedy assassination, whether it was what was going on in Vietnam, the Iran, uh, or landing on the moon. I mean, these were massive historical events that people heard their news through him. And at the end of every broadcast, he would end with, and that's the way it is. And then he would give the date of that broadcast. Now, I've wondered what would it have been like if he would have heard the news, I mean, and let's go back some 2,000 years ago, and heard the news and was reporting of what had happened to this man 2,000 years ago. And that's the way that it is. It's, this man had been transformed. There's no way that we can argue about it. And, and this is what it means to us, because there are some things that we hear about and experience in life that once we hear it, we have to think, what does it mean now? I was actually talking with someone after the first service, and they said, I remember sitting in my house when, when he was announcing that we'd landed on the moon, how excited I was. Now it's become passe, but back then, I mean, those of you who were around then, what was it like for you? It was astounding to think that we could go to the moon and, and to think that we had that ability, that something that no one in history had ever done. And that's the way that it is, that, that man could accomplish such great things. And, and people would stop and go, what does it mean now? And there are some things that we see happen in our life that when we hear the news of it, we go, well, what does that mean for me? And I think the same thing here. When we read this passage and we see how God worked in this man born lame, we have to say, well, and this is the way that it is, but what does it mean to me? How does it affect my life? How do, what does it mean for what, how I am to live in the here and now? And that's what we're going to look at today, that beyond the, the miraculous event of his physical healing, that there is a great representation of a spiritual healing and a, and a lesson that each one of us can learn about who we are, who God is, and what God has for us, and how we are to live in the here and now. 
how we are to live in our marriages, how we are to live in our work lives, how do we are to live with our children, that there's a transformation that occurs that begins to, to seep in all around us and changes who we are forever. But before we go any further, as we delve into this passage, let's pray that God, by His Holy Spirit, would awaken our hearts that we might see the reality of who He is and what He has for us. So let's take a moment to pray. Oh Lord our God, you are holy. You are God. Your word says that we are to be still and know that you are God. Right now, Lord, we quiet our hearts. We like to silence the voices that are going on all around us so that we might hear from your word, that we might know that's the way that it is, that life is different, that there's a change. Not a change in a lame man some 2,000 years ago, but there's changes that are going on all around us in our lives, in our situations, and the helplessness and hopelessness of our own estate. So, Lord, our God, bless us. Speak to us. Lord, no matter what our language is, no matter what our background is, Oh, Lord, our God, may you be with us right now as we open your word that is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And may our hearts be open to the truth of your word that we might go forth changed. We ask you to be with us and bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we jump into this passage, I want to catch us all up on what just happened. Um, We'd seen the early church come together in this great fellowship. That's what we learned about last week, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And there were about 3,000 converts, and they're meeting in one another's homes all over Jerusalem. And they're, they're praying together. They're living this a life that's so amazing that it says, awe came upon all of them. It was such a unity that was unbelievable. I mean, and that's incredible. When you see a unity like what they saw, it is incredible. And we know how hard it is to get along with our neighbors or our friends. And that these guys had everything together and were in common. It was a pretty amazing thing. And they were devoting themselves, as we read last week, to the prayers. And, and it was customary within Judaism, and most of them come from Juda- uh, Jewish backgrounds. They were all Jewish background believers. We don't see the Gentiles come in until later in the book of Acts. But these Jewish uh, background believers, were. it was customary for them to have certain specific times of prayer, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, and one in the evening. And it was customary for them to go to the temple, which was the, the center of Judaism. And they would go to the temple to pray. Now, if you are uh, a person with a disability, as this man was, and we learn in Acts chapter 4 that he's about 40 years old, he'd been disabled his entire life, but he still needed a way to survive. And so he would need money. And if he's, he's, he's a smart guy, he's been around a while, and he knows it's all about location, location, location. So he goes to the place where he knows that the pilgrims are going to be, or those who are more likely inclined to give. Because this hour at 3 p.m. is what our text says, is that it was actually known as the hour of confession. And it was also the hour of giving. And so people would actually go confess their sins, and in a means of getting atonement for their sins, would often give alms or help the poor, donations, charity, generosity, in the hope that their sins would be forgiven. It's a customary practice that some faiths actually carry on, that they would give to the poor. And so this guy was a smart guy. 
So he's at the gate called Beautiful as these pilgrims are going in, and they are, he's hoping to capitalize on their generosity of them in their sin, and they're feeling guilt of their sin. Hopefully they'll give him money. And so he's there day after day, morning and night. Now, he wasn't allowed into the temple. Jewish law forbid anyone with any type of disability whatsoever of entering into the temple. And so because of his disability, he wasn't allowed in. And it's, it's a pretty incredible thing. He'd see these pilgrims going in day after day. And I want us to just to, for a moment imagine what that would have been like. This is the day before wheelchairs. This is the day before people really were uh, finding ways to help communicate and transport. I mean, he's relying on the charity of his friends. But day after day, he's looking up at these passers-by, calling out alms for the poor over and over and over again. Calling out, calling out, and seeing people one after the other just continue on in their conversation and ignore him. I mean, we've done this. You've ever walked in Chicago, you've had someone come up to you and wanting money, and we have a tendency to ignore them. We don't want to be bothered by them. We don't want to give them an opportunity to, to really capitalize on us and, and, uh, because we know that there might be more come. And, and people undoubtedly passed him by hundreds, if not thousands of people over the years. Now, as we look at this man, we have to see that he's not just a, I mean, this is a man that's disabled. This is a man that is not allowed to, to go into the very temple where God's presence was. He's an outsider. And why does God lay this out within his word? I believe there are a few different reasons why. It's not just to show a physical healing, but it is many ways a spiritual representation of our own condition before God. It shows, as we get into this, and you can follow this in your notes, Acts 3 shows us our helplessness before God. It shows our helplessness in that we try to get to God, and I find it interesting that he's at the gate called beautiful, and he's this man who would be considered by many not to be beautiful, and he can't get in. He can't get in. He's relying on other people. He is completely unable to do that which he really wants to to do. He is completely helpless, dependent upon the charity of others. And while we may not physically be like him, we are like him spiritually helpless. See, he's a reminder that life is tough, that we are born damaged with hardware that we can't change and software that glitches in a bunch of different ways. We have sins that we struggle with and things about ourselves we don't like. Life is tough, and we believe that life should always be fair. And we're, we're constantly thinking we deserve different things. He is a picture that we don't deserve anything. We don't deserve anything. We think God is it's great or God is uh, blessed to have us on his team. We have this very high opinion of ourselves and how great we are and how talented we are and what we have to offer. But the reality is is that we're destitute, that we're desperate, and life is tough. We have sins that we deal with day in and day out. We have things about ourselves that we hate and we want to change, but we don't seem to. Life is tough. We're all dealt different hands that we can't change. See, from birth, he knew it was going to be hard. He knew that many didn't want him around, but he also knew that he had to survive. And that's what most of us do. We may try our best to cope with the hand that we're dealt with. And that's what he's doing. He's trying his best. Life is tough, and that's letter A in your notes. And letter B is try our best to cope with the hand that we're dealt with. Rarely does life go exactly the way we want it. 
We try our best to get by to do what is right, but our right is not enough. He couldn't change his condition, and it can't change ours either. He'd been doing the same thing day after day for years. But today, he had a heavenly appointment. Remember, people were passing by all the time, didn't turn their heads. They ignored him. He learned early on that you only pay attention to those who truly pay attention to you. He kept calling out of habit, hoping to get something. Finally, Peter and John approached. Peter looked at him, as did John. Peter told him to look at them. No mindless staring off into the crowds. They wanted his full attention, which he was ready to give. Calling out with no response can become a hopeless task. But now he had people telling him to look at them. Surely he was going to get something. Money would sure be a huge help, but it could only be a temporary help. See, he is a picture of how we trust in the wrong things. See, we think that there are all kinds of things that will help us, help us feel better, help us get through money, power, porn, status, wrong relationships, food, drugs, uh, alcohol, entertainments, and the list goes on and on and on and on. We trust in so many things, but we don't trust in God. We trust in the many of the lies the world puts before us, the glamorization of sins and lifestyles that cause us to go into debt and bondage to get. See, this is one of the things that I see happen often between younger people and older people. Younger people are so busy trying to become what the world values and wants it to become and tells it to become that people will sacrifice themselves to do it. Most of the time, it simply leads to heartbreak. Occasionally, some succeed. But what they find is that they really didn't want it in the first place, for the pleasure it offers is fleeting. Older people, on the other hand, have tried those things, realized that it didn't offer what they thought it did, and rather than waste their lives anymore, try to find the best way to live within what they have and who they are. It doesn't always work that way. Young people get it earlier, and older people fail to get it later. But the principle is pretty sound. We need to believe the Scripture before we pursue the lies of the world and save ourselves a lot of heartache and regret in the process. Now, returning to our text in verse 5, it says he affixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter doesn't have any money, but what he does have is Jesus. And God gives the power that Jesus gave to him by his spirit to heal this man. And when we look at Peter and John with a man born lame, we see that God sought us in our misery. And by sending his spirit to be in his people and work through them is God's way of helping us. That's number two in your notes. God's way to help us. God came to help us where we are. We think that God is unaware or unwilling to come to us in the middle of our circumstances, but he comes in a variety of ways to show himself. Now, I just want to stop here for a moment because I don't want to get into the spiritual so much that we forget the physical and the literal that's there because we can, in other words, not really get, uh, we can overlook what it's really talking about. What I'm talking about there is healing. Let me ask this question, does God heal today? Does he heal instantaneously and spiritually? Yes, he does. Now, some would say, well, why doesn't he heal? Some would say that was only for a time, the time of the apostles, and then it was no more. I disagree. Um, I do see it as an auth- a way to validate who Jesus is, but I do see, personally, the gift is still in operation, but our understanding of it is very deficient. And it's not the guys on TV, such as Benny Hens of the world, who are doing that healing. That guy is a heretic. He's a false teacher. And here's what I mean, though, by this healing that the Scripture does talk about. 
And I'm not talking about just different kinds of mental healing, emotional healing, spiritual healing. That's a part of it. But I'm talking about an instantaneous, supernatural healing where that person is changed in a moment, the leg is broken, then made well. That's what I'm talking about, a bona fide, supernatural healing. That there is, I believe, still in existence. And he uses people to do it, but not in the way that we've seen on television. See, there are some conditions that must be met for our truly understand it. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that every single person who believes in Jesus receives a spiritual gift when they are saved. And there's a list of these different spiritual gifts within 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14. And one of them, it's a fascinating one, it says that there are gifts of healings. It's actually a double plural in Greek. It's not gift of healings or gifts of healings. It's gifts of healings. It's a double plural, meaning that there are several different facets to this healing ministry that some people are given the gift to have, to use. Now, this gift that they do receive cannot just be to heal anybody at any time the way that they want to. It doesn't work that way. It only happens, and it's connected intimately with what is known as the gift of faith. And I'm not talking about saving faith or sanctifying faith, but a faith that believes that a mountain could go into the heart of the sea, and it would. Because God supernaturally speaks to them in that moment of something that he directly wants to do, and then they, in action, believe that God's going to heal that person, and they do heal. Now, it's not a person that just declares, oh, you're going to be healed right now because God has to be beholden to me and what I say. That's not it at all whatsoever. It's, that's not the formula, the way that it's laid out. That's not the person that makes, it makes God some cosmic genie that if I say the right formula, and then he has to obey me. That's not what the scripture's talking about. It's saying that God, in his sovereignty, wants to heal a person, and he speaks to a person. It says, this is who I want to heal. Go over and touch that person, and they will be made well. Now, one person that had this gift was Reuben Archer Torrey, who was the first superintendent of Moody Bible Institute. He wrote a book called Divine Healing, fascinating book. And he talked, he was a person that actually had this gift and, and elaborates it just like I'm elaborating it to you now. And he tells that I couldn't heal whoever I wanted to heal. But he talks about people that were healed and not just people that were like have an illness and then if you believe it, then it's healed. Like I've seen Benny Hindu. He's, a person says, well, I have stomach cancer. And he says, okay, God is healing that cancer right now. But if you stop believing in that healing, it's going to go away. That's stupid. It's dumb. Do you think that lame man went, I'm going to stop believing in it being healed right now, and I'll be crippled again? No, it's a change, a dramatic one, an instantaneous one that occurs. And so that's what Tory talks about. He says that there are times, and he talks about people that had broken limbs, and that God tells him, I want you to heal that person, and I'm going to heal them. I want you to go lay hands on them, and he prays for them, and they're healed. Now, he didn't want it to be a sideshow or spectacle because like Jesus, Jesus' miracles were to validate the proclamation of the gospel and the good news of eternal life and forgiveness of sins. That's the point that the miracles were to have is that they were validate the ministry and message of Jesus. Not just to, to just heal for healing's sake, although God would do that, but it would show the reality of his kingdom that was working among men. And Tory talks about that. He said that this is secondary to the proclamation of the gospel. And this is what Jesus did, by the way, in the book of Mark. After Jesus healed in the, uh, all day, from morning to night, he, he goes to sleep, gets up early in the morning, and has his quiet time. 
He gets away alone uh, to be with his father. And the disciples are looking for him everywhere because a crowd is formed. And they, they want to know Jesus. They want healing. They want all this stuff to happen to them. And they come to Jesus and they think, Jesus, your ministry has boomed. You have gone viral, baby. Jesus, you are a superstar. We've got to capitalize on this fame. People want you to heal. Let's go. Let's go. And Jesus is like, that's not the purpose I came. I didn't come to be a sideshow. I came to proclaim the good news of who Jesus is, who I am, the good news of eternal life. And that's exactly what he did. And so he wouldn't be a sideshow for anyone. But God does heal. And the purpose of this, why God put it into the Holy Scripture, was to help show Jesus' power. Was to help us see Jesus' power. It was in Jesus' name that this man was healed. Jesus was behind this healing. And this showed that Jesus was still active, though not on earth, that his spirit was working through his people and it served to verify that the kingdom of God had come near. It verified all that he said and all that he taught. It caused people to hold the name of Jesus in high regard. The name of Jesus is powerful because it carries all of who he is and what he says behind it. Now, I love what happens after this man is healed. Look at verse 7. This is awesome. And he took him by the right hand. Now, I've tried to imagine this for a moment. Just try to put myself as this man. I've never been able to feel my limbs. I always feel people lifting the fullness of my weight in my armpits to, to get me by, to get me on the mat, to carry me around. And then suddenly, this man who asked me to, asked me to fix my eyes on him, he says that he doesn't have silver or gold. And what good is he? But he says that he can make me walk. Dare I believe this? And he reaches out his hand. And, I, and can you imagine? He starts to feel tingling that he never felt before. He started feeling things he never felt before. And then to get up, it says his, his feet and his ankles were made strong. And you want to know if he caught his balance. And, and just the feeling that looked over him, like, could this be true? I'm, I'm walking. I mean, we, we can't imagine the desperation, what this meant. And to feel his legs be made strong. And then to take a step. And I mean, remember, he'd never walked before. Not in his life. Not once had he ever walked. He'd been lame his entire life. I mean, trying to imagine this for a moment. Uh, Some of you might know, uh, we have a young man that goes here. His name is Mustafa Alwan. And Mustafa has a disability where he can't walk. He, he had a deformity after he received a shot when he was in Iraq. It deformed his, his hands and his feet. And he has a hard time moving and getting around. We were trying to help him get transportation. So we, we tried to uh, buy a, and tried out a trike, one of those big bikes, to see if he could pedal it. And watch a 24-year-old man try to ride a bike who's never ridden a bike in his life with a deformity. He couldn't do it. His hands couldn't move and, and to not have any idea of balance. I mean, many of us have learned this when we were young and trying to figure that out. Now imagine learning to walk for the first time and something you'd seen people do day in and day out. You'd long to be a part of it. You'd seen your family do it. You'd seen your siblings do it. You saw people day in and day out and you wondered, why not me? Why them? Why did I have to be born this way? Why did I have to have this struggle? Why did I have to bear this burden? It's not fair. How many of us have done that in our lives? We compare everything around us. Why do I get, I get to do that? And again, it's a sign of our spiritual helplessness. And he is helpless. And then to suddenly be able to stand and then walk and dare to wonder, can I take another step? Am I going to fall? Take another step. <laughs> and then another one. 
and then another one, and to get your balance, and, and to figure this out, and, and look at Peter and John and go, wow. And then, you, then I can just picture, if this were a movie, you take the first steps, and then it, the, the camera pans out, and then I, I think you would see this across the temple. Check it out! Check it out! I, seriously! Can you imagine how excited this guy was? I mean, he's the first guy doing the, check me out. Look at this, baby. Whoa, how you like me now? I'm sure he was dancing. I'm sure of this guy. You never walk in your life. And this happens. Wouldn't that be awesome? And it's showing, and, and he is overwhelmed with his joy. And then can you imagine this? It says next in the next verse that he's into Solomon's portico, which was part of the temple. Can you imagine what his heart felt like when he was walking into this gate that he was forbidden to walk through for years? And then suddenly to walk in, and it's, a, it's another a picture. I now have access to God. But a crowd begins to form. They're like, can you imagine the people standing around? How are you doing today? What's going on with you? How do you like the falafel? It's good. Oh, wow. Wait, 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 wait. What's that guy doing running across the temple? <laughs> that's not exactly reverent. What? He's jumping. Wait. Hey, that's the, that's the beggar. And then a crowd begins to form. And now the guy's getting scared because he knew that he wasn't supposed to be in there, but he's walking, and he's wondering if they're going to pull him out. And it says next that he clings to, to Peter and John. And Peter stands up and sees the crowd forming, and like any good preacher, he takes the opportunity to preach. He starts to preach. But you know, it's before we get to that, what I'm amazed when we see God's power at work, it surprises us. It surprises us. You know, C.S. Lewis, in his autobiography, he entitled his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. Because there's a joy that comes over you when you really know who Jesus is. It says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Are you joyous? Have you failed? Have you forgotten what God has done in your life? Do you have a joy? We're to be known by our joy. Some Christians are not known by your joy. You're just known as complaining. Where's the joy? He is surprised by the joy because God has changed him. And if you've been changed by the gospel of grace, then you need to be joyful. Now, it might surprise us, and it, it, it's a change that occurs, and it really surprises us because God's doing things in us that we couldn't understand. But not everybody feels the same way. As a matter of fact, it stuns other people. It might surprise us, but it stuns others. That's what we look at verse 9. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to them. In Greek, these words indicate that they were stupefied, shocked, wondered what it all meant. It just stuns other people when they see the change that God has wrought in your life. And as this crowd begins to gather again, Peter stands up and shows where real hope is found. I mean, God's helped us, yes. God shows our helplessness, and he's helped us, but now he's showing where real hope is found. This formerly lame man is clinging to Peter and John, probably a joy, but also fear, wondering if they're going to remove him. But Peter makes a special effort to show and connect Jesus back to the promised Messiah, who is to be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says in verse 11, while he cling 
clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to him in the portico called Solomon's, astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power of piety we have made him walk? It's not about who we are. We can't do anything in our own power. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Now, it's pretty amazing. Peter doesn't pull punches. And to say that this is a bold thing that he's doing is an understatement. He'd seen the crowd go after Jesus and had him killed, and now he's testifying in front of them about this very same man. What would be the result? Would they revolt? This change was too amazing. Peter takes the opportunity to point out their complicity in the entire matter. Now, there's this debate on who killed Jesus. Did the Romans do it because they actually were the ones that nailed him to the cross? Did the Jews do it because they betrayed him? The reality is, spiritually, that we're all guilty. In the movie The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, he made sure in the crucifixion scene when the, the, the uh, stake was to go into his hand, that it was Gibson's hand was the one nailing it because he wanted to show that he was the one who did it. And we are too. By our sin, we are complicit in his death. We have to understand our moral obligation and responsibility in that God has created us for himself and we have rebelled, bringing about the crucifixion of Jesus. And he begins to elaborate that in the details of all that happened. And and Peter doesn't pull punches. He goes after them. In verse 14, But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. That's how bad this is. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And people were, I'm sure they stopped and went, oh my gosh. And this is now, everything's coming into view. They realized they were guilty because this man couldn't have been healed by anything else. I mean, this was instantaneous. This didn't happen over time. This showed the reality that it was Jesus that was behind it. And they're struck to the heart. And then Peter pulls back a little bit. And he says, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore. Repent. Now, it's pretty amazing here what repentance is. I mean, many people want to follow Jesus without repentance, but it doesn't work. See, we, a pr- repentance means turning away, changing one's mind. It's a great word in Greek. It's in the imperative mood in, in that it's a command and it's an active voice that you are the one to do this action, not anyone else. You're commanded to turn away. And this turn away is pregnant with the idea of abhorring your sin and embracing right conduct. I've heard a great many Christians try to excuse their disobedience by saying that they are saved and God has got them, therefore they can be as disobedient as they want. That's heresy. Romans chapter 6, verse 1, says it very clearly. What shall we say then? Or do we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? If Jesus died on the cross for you and showed the price of what sin is, how can you willingly embrace something that brought about his death? And it's a rhetorical question in that we cannot continue in it. It's meant to wake you up, make us all up, 
We can't stay in our sin and hold on to the Savior at the same time. It can't be done. It's as opposite as day and night. The two cannot exist together in a voluntary basis. Now, I want to read you a, a, a passage that is almost like, you know, the shock that you see for a patient that should really wake you up, wake us all up. This is written in the book of Hebrews. And the author of Hebrews says, Dear friends, and this, just, this verse alone freaks me out. If we deliberately continue sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. Boom. Mic drop with God. That freaks me out. He goes on to elaborate on it, just in case we feel like we're taking it out of context. He says, There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. For anyone who refused to obey the law of Moses, he's going back to the Old Testament, was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now think how much more worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God and treated the blood of the covenant which made us holy as if it were common and unholy and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. For we know the one who said, I will take revenge, I will pay them back. Now, some people say they're going to get revenge. That means nothing. If God says he's going to take vengeance... You should be scared. God didn't play around. I will pay them back. He also said the Lord will judge his own people. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We forget that God is living. We think that God is not active in our world today, that God has passed on. It is just for a moment, and he will let men continue on in disobedience for a time, and then he will show up. He will intercede, and he will show himself to be God no matter what is going on in our world. We can't continue on in sin and have hold on to God at the same time. Peter calls us, them and us, to repent so that our sins will be blotted out. The word here means to obliterate, erase, wipe out, blot out. Peter calls us to repent so that our sins may be removed. He wants to erase them. Ink in the ancient world didn't have a sticky quality to it so that it couldn't stick to parchment. It could have water poured on it. It would simply wash off. Think of a dry erase board, how quickly it comes off. Jesus takes away our sin from us, the guilt of our sins from the time that we were born until now and even into the future when we truly trust in him. No matter how bad it was, no matter how heinous the action, Christ's death was sufficient. It was not meant for the, just the smallest of sins that we would all excuse, but it's that most would, wash, would gloss over. As Lewis said it, God has forgiven the unforgivable in you so that you might forgive the unforgivable in others. He calls us to repent to enter into this forgiveness that has been made available because of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Now let me ask you this. Have your sins been removed? And how do you know? Or do they still haunt you? Repent and turn away from them so that God may forgive them. Don't carry that awful burden any longer. And when we do, we will experience renewal. Renewal. Look at verse 20 and 21 here. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I love this word refreshing in Greek. It's very unique. It's only used here in the entirety of the New Testament. It means to breathe easily again. Refreshing, carry the idea of cooling or reviving with fresh air. Uh, I was in Delhi 
uh, a few years ago, and I was in the back of a car and being transported all over Delhi. And Delhi's a massive city, 22 million people. And um, there's a, a lack uh, in Delhi. There's so many people, so many slums. There's not very many bathrooms around, so that people will use a bathroom all over the place. And I remember being in the back of this car, and it was dark, and there was so much traffic, and you have all the smog that comes from that, and just smelling this filth that's in the air, and I'm getting moved around in this car, and I can't breathe. The, the smell is so awful and so stifling. And to get out of that for a moment and to be able to breathe fresh air, and you know what it's like. Go out in the country sometime when the wind is blowing. You get out of your car. You stop and you smell. And you know it's this fresh air that comes over you. And that's what he's saying is that when you repent of your sins and turn from it, it's this idea of relief that God gives you relief and rest and refreshment. Some of us are holding on to our sins and been holding on to them so long that we're breathing the stench of our disobedience, the stench of death. And he's saying that, come to me and repent of your sins. Turn away from it. I want to refresh you. I want to give you my life. I want to give you peace. I want to relieve you. I want to give you breath and refreshment. Don't hold on any longer. I want you to experience renewal, renewal. Now, for this next verse, I want to look at what the New Living Translation, which conveys more of the idea of what's going on. It says, the times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord, and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. I'm in verse 20 and 21, and I just wanted to, again, read this through the New Living Translation, if we could bring that up on the screen. For he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things, as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. As we experience renewal in following Jesus, we battle on. But we must remember that he is coming again, the time of the restoration of all things. We are renewed as we wait for creation to be restored. This world is not the way that it should be. And it won't be until Jesus returns. And he will restore. When Jesus comes again, restores all things, that he judges wickedness and rewards righteousness. And the full reign of his kingdom will be experienced and known. The effects of the curse will be gone. There will be no more death, sorrow, or tears. Everything will be made new. And we will be with him forever and ever. And this will happen when he comes again. And he is coming. Now I want to end with verse 22 through 26. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Now I'm going to pause here just for a moment. I know I've gone over time, but so what? It's okay. We're in the presence of God. We can read the word. I understand if you have a place to go. I understand that. If you have to go, it's fine. But uh, we just won't be a little bit longer. But it's interesting, in Islam, they say that this is an allusion to Muhammad. That he was the prophet that God had foretold that would come and actually restore true religion. But here, we see that this text is actually applied to Isa, Jesus. He is the true prophet, and he actually fulfills the three offices we see within the Old Testament. The prophet, priest, and king. And he would be a prophet like Moses, whom God spoke with face to face. And so he is this true prophet... And and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people, meaning you will not obey. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. But if you don't listen and do not obey, you will eventually be destroyed. 
and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days that we are living in. You are the sons of the prophets, meaning you are beneficiaries of all that they had foretold and of the covenant that God had made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and he's going back to the founder of Judaism, whom God had promised that through his descendant, all the, 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 the people of the earth would be blessed. And that descendant, that's why Jesus, by the way, and we have the, the uh, lineage of Jesus laid out in Matthew chapter 1, the passage that if you ever read, you skip over really fast. Okay, that this passage showed and showed to Jews that he was a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it was, he was the one that was foretold. And by believing in him that we were brought in to be beneficiaries of all that was said, that we were grafted in to receive this salvation that God had foretold and had purchased and made available through Jesus' death and his resurrection from the dead. That he is the one true son of God. God had Peter include that as a foretaste of what was to come with the Gentiles, and he's elaborating through him, all the people of the earth would be blessed. All people, all backgrounds could be recipient of God's salvation, no matter what their tribe or tongue or skin color or language or culture that they come from. Then he says, And in your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then verse 26, God, having raised up his servant through his resurrection, Jesus he's talking about here, sent him to you first. Remember, because salvation is to the Jew first, then to the Gentiles, which we'll see later on in the book of Acts, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness, to turn away from your sin so that you would not continue in it because time is running out. He wants you to walk with him. And it's a word for us. He wants us to turn from our sins, and we can see that we are to tell others before time runs out that they might turn from their sins and then not be not have Christ at the end of time. Time will not go on forever. There is an expiration date that will not be missed. We must remember that there is one thing that we will not be able to do in heaven. Do you know what that is? We'll do a lot of things in heaven, but there's one thing that we can't do in heaven. Let's tell other people about who Jesus is. You can't evangelize because everybody there will already be a follower of Jesus. So why not do it now? What are you waiting for? Who do you need to tell about who Jesus is? Who in your family? Which of your children? Which of your grandchildren? Maybe it's an aunt. Maybe it's an uncle. Maybe it's a cousin. Maybe it's your coworker. Why are you waiting? Pray that God would give you that opportunity. Let's evangelize and share the truth of our faith and let the reality of our life show that the kingdom of God is living within each one of us, that we were once helpless and, and received God's help as someone spoke the word of truth to us. And we were transformed. And then in our joy, we testify to other people about the greatness of who God is. That's how God has ordained it. Peter healed a man so that others might see and know who Jesus is and receive a foretaste of his coming kingdom. He is coming again and he's going to judge the living and the dead and he will bring a new heaven and a new earth with him. Don't wait. Trust in him today. Tell others about him. That's the way it is. October 15th, 2017.